Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Observera, observera, which of course is Swedish for actor and actor. Did you like, I should do it more like the Swedish chef, wouldn't I? Should I? Yeah. Observera, observera, that's Dutch. And let's not worry about it. Um, observera will do. It'll do. It's actor and actor, isn't it, in Swedish, isn't it, James? Yeah, absolutely. Of course it is. Now, now, this is We Have Ways of Making You Talk, the Second World War podcast. I'm Al Murray, comedian and history buff. And I'm James Holland, historian of the Second World War, author and broadcaster. And we're back in Bovington, home of the Tank Museum, and currently the home of our podcast. And with us is David Willey, the curator. Great to have you here, David. Yep, brilliant man. Thank uh, you. He's here to correct our mistakes, so you don't have to online. Okay. Um, <laughs> but we're only really here to talk about one thing today, and that... Oh, what have you been up to? Before, before we get into the meat of it, what have you been up to, James? Well, I've had an amazing time in the last couple of weeks because I've been in Guadalcanal down in the uh, Solomon Islands on the far side of the world. What, on holiday? <laughs> yeah. Come on, know. babes. Let's go to Guadalcanal <laughs> for, the, for the weekend. Well, I've got to say, Rachel wasn't that keen on the idea. <laughs> 30 hours to get there, then just look at lots of war debris. But boy, was there a lot. It's absolutely amazing. It is, yep. Because, well, the thing is, it's, it's never really been cleared up because... You know, they're not a particularly wealthy country and no one's particularly interested and no one, apart from mad people like me, get there. And um, and so there's just crap everywhere. I mean, you know, really? you, you get up onto Galloping Horse, which was this big feature that the, the American army, actually, rather than the Marines, attacked towards the end of the campaign. And there's foxholes galore. I found a German, um, a Japanese um, machine gun magazine. Remarkable if you found a German one, <laughs> yes, I mean. Wouldn't it? Would, would um, but loads of sort of, you know, um, remnants of grenades, shrapnel, wow. bullets, literally just stuff everywhere and we also went on to bloody ridge which of course is where john baslone gets his medal of honor and it, we, the perimeter wire was still there and lots of old caps of um uh, hand grenade tins yeah. just lying on the ground i mean it was wow. amazing well i've been in chelmsford <laughs> yeah your tour started yeah it? the state of chelmsford it's not a rich place it's still in the state it was 70 years ago etc <laughs> <laughs> anyway and i had a lot oh yes my tour, i've started touring you I'm started all touring over, all over the country landlord of hope and glory uh, book now to avoid disappointment and how many more to go? Oh, I think it's 45, but I, don't, I tend to not look at the diary and count the dates because mm. then I'd never do it. I'd say, actually, no, I'm okay. staying at home. Yeah. And uh, what about Monty? Is he with you this time? Um, Monty isn't on this tour, but now you've reminded me, I think he may join us. And, yeah. You should be take, a, uh, take Rommel this time. Uh, well, we've made with a pair of them. Anyway, <laughs> we are here... In front to talk about D-Day, and I think we're in, we're looking right up the backside of exactly the right thing to talk about D-Day, which is a DD tank, the Sherman Duplex Drive. Uh, it's, it's bonkers, isn't well, it? Well, because it epitomises. I mean, I think the hardware like this epitomises the um, the Allied ingenuity uh, and the approach, technological approach, to the invasion of Normandy. Because I mean, it's a tank, but it can swim. Exactly. I mean, what I love about so much of the kind of Allied kit, particularly the stuff that they're preparing for, for Normandy, is just how outside the box it is. I mean, Air Chief Marshal Arthur Harris hated it. He called these people panacea mongers, people who yeah. felt there was a sort of shortcut by thinking of wacky things like bouncing bombs and stuff. But look at this. I mean, look at it. Okay, so I can see... I'm looking at it now. Yeah, describe I, it. Okay, so I can see that... 
familiar tank tracks of a Sherman tank, but it's surrounded by a great big rectangular canvas canopy which at the time you would waterproof, there would be a, a sort of propeller at the back, wouldn't there, David? And, and you'd literally launch off a landing craft and try and swim through the sea. So I mean, this it makes, is the Archimedes principle uh, writ large, isn't it? This is displacement of water. Um, uh, David, take us through the, the DD. So what we're looking at is a 30-tonne Sherman tank. They've put a screen round the outside of to displace, as you say, displace the water so it'll float. If you look on the canvas, about three foot from the top, there's a black line painted, and that... That's all, its plimsoll line, right? Exactly. All being well, that's where it will float. The water level should come to. So <laughs> any waves... safe, isn't it? Any waves over three foot. Now, they start off... This is a Hungarian. Nicholas Strausler comes up with the idea, look, we're always going to have this problem. How do we get tanks across a river, across a lake? Um, how do we get them onto a beach, potentially? And this issue, he comes up with the idea, put a screen around something, and he starts off with a tetrarch, he does a Valentine tank, yeah. and the actual ones that are going to be used on D-Days are these Shermans. But the issue behind it is back to D-Day itself. What's the problem? The issue is if we bung all our tanks in one landing craft, send it towards the beaches, if that ship goes down... I think you're talking eggs in one basket, aren't you? You've got that as a real problem. Yeah. So this idea, and they know because of the intelligence, the photo reconnaissance, the resistance reports, the Germans aren't stupid. They don't have all their guns facing out to sea. They're lined up to fire diagonally or along parallel to the beach, and they're defended from the seaward side. So even if we've got our destroyers coming in, we need armoured support on the beach with the infantry straight away. Now, we've had that disaster at Dieppe in 42. We're going to learn the lessons from this. We're going for beaches rather than going for a port because when we go to Dieppe, you know, it's really heavily defended. We have a lot of trouble. And we've got clever ideas out there with engineer tanks, things they've been thinking about. But Dieppe is the one that crystallizes the idea that we are going to have to put a formation together, let's do some specialised armour, and that will include these amazing DD floating tanks, and how the hell are we going to, what's the problem, you come to us, and we'll find a way to help sort out now, getting your army on the beaches. Now, this is a British innovation, isn't it? This one, yeah, well, if you call Strauss, he's actually well, Hungarian he, well, working yeah, in Britain. But, 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 yeah. but, but he's doing it with, with, the, with the British army. The Americans, because I think one of the, uh, uh, in fact, I think in anticipation of us coming and talking about this, we had a question from Jonathan who said, why did the Americans launch their DDs 6,000 yards out from, from their beaches, which when they were advised to launch them from 3,000 yards out and they sank and so they didn't get the armour support on the beach when they needed it. It's Omaha Beach, famously, where the DDs failed. What, what, what's that about? Well, there's two battalions um, and one of them does... So, you know, one of them does launch them a, a, a really far way out, but the other one goes. Actually, no, I'm not going to launch them here because that would be mad because the weather's really rough and there's a there's a Big tide current, coming a current yeah. coming across them. That's not going to work. I'm going to let them in really much closer and all but two, I think, re reach the shore. Right. So. But where they put them far away out, then obviously, yeah, they do get wrecked. And they've done all this, this marine archaeology, which has shown why they all sank. And it's because their aiming point was the church spire at Colville. Yep. And they were launched further out and they were cutting across. So the, the current was coming at, 40, at 90 degrees to the angle at which they were hurtling or not 
going very slowly rather I should say towards the beach and so they all got swamped is that right David yeah and we we we, we have this this business as well that the British we had the advantage if you want to put it that way exercise smash down the road from here um, before D-Day you were looking at April and May what the British find out is when the seas are rough the risk to these vehicles, and they're actually pre- practicing down in Pool Harbour with Valentine floating yes. tanks. A number of them get swamped in rough weather. So the British pick up very quickly that let's take the risk of going closer if we can, if it looks like we can get in there. So the British beaches, in some of the areas they take them closer in, um, actually some of them, again, we still actually launch as 5,000 yards out. You know, that's a yeah. long way. Some of these tanks took an hour to float in and get oh, to the beaches. Bloody hell. Um, but at the same time, so so again, this is part of that whole, the planning for D-Day and what actually happens on D-Day, it doesn't always go to plan full yeah. stop. We know that. But this idea that certainly for the British and there's British commanders are actually talking to the Americans off Omaha, why not go in a bit closer? No, we're going to launch 5,000 yards. The thing to remember as well is actually tanks do get ashore at Omaha, but they're deep wading tanks. They're not the floating ones. So the idea there's no actual tank support is a bit of a myth. Um, but but these there are multiple myths around Omaha anyway, which I think we're going to maybe touch on. Yeah, I, th- I think it's worth talking about some of these ones. But the idea, the key thing to remember with these things is it's the first time they've been used. Yeah. So there's that shock and awe factor of all of a sudden, and there's a German account of they thought these are canvas boats coming ashore. The screen drops down and German for, oh, fuck, it's a tank. Um, <laughs> because genuinely that, you know, it hasn't happened. What yeah. idiot's going to float a 30-ton yeah. tank? Um, and, and to come up on the beach. And there's areas where, again, with this, where you read some of the accounts, the confusion, the things going on, but suddenly a tank appears and starts taking out that pillbox. How big, I mean, with the, the last podcast when we talked about tank technology, we looked at the Tiger tank. How big a skirt would a Tiger tank have needed to, to float? <laughs> Because this is 30 tonnes. Is a Tiger Tank's what? 50, uh, 56. 56, yeah. 56 yeah. yeah. So, I mean, Im- impossible. So, and, and, But the, the principle there, you know, and, and I'd go back to, so what are we looking at here? We're looking at a series of problems that the D-Day landings are going to put up. We've had that Dieppe experience. What's your problem? Come to us, and that is the engineers, the scientists, and then with the 79th Armoured Division, this group that comes together to actually look after this specialised armour. And really, what they're saying is okay, if we've got a bit of blue clay, soft ground. Okay, you've got a problem there. The Coppets team find out about this. Let's um, these these guys that are coming through the surf, you know, in diving suits. So the January the 1st, 1944. You know, they're on the beaches finding this blue clay. If it's blue clay, a tank's going to sink. Let's come up then with Bobbin. We're going to put a tank ashore with a great roll of matting. We can drive over that. You know, these are guys looking so, at a problem. What can we answer? So this is in direct. If if this is in direct contradiction to the idea that, for instance, the Germans are doing all the technological snazziness, and they're the people pushing the engineering boundaries. This is a this is a canvas skirt that's been put in a tank, but that's as innovative and as smart. As any as anything that the Germans come up with technologically for their tanks during the war, isn't it? I mean, well, well, arguably, you, you you can, and 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 you've got a really big specific problem. If we're looking at D-Day, we do not ca- cannot countenance the risk of another Dieppe. Okay, yep. if we fail, so we are looking. Even if some of these things turn turn out to be amazing successes on the day, we are looking at those as a problem. 
and what the hell can we come up with to answer that? Yeah. And in Britain, we have some really clever people mm. and some great innovation. How many, how many of these were there? How many did Sherman DDs did we build in the end? No idea. Oh, I've got that two. Got him. That's it. I've got Finally two questions. Finally got him. I've got yes. two questions for you. So the first one is when you, when you talk about when you listen to uh, people talking about that, the crews are always saying, "Oh, you know, we were waterproofing our DD tank or waterproofing our tank." What does waterproofing involve? Obviously, putting up the screen, but are you then covering it in Vaseline or something? I mean, you know, what what is that? What, what's so involved? so with different tanks, you've got different things going. So DD tanks are the duplex drive. It stands yes. for propellers at the back, or yes. you can drive on your tracks. Two ways of driving. Now, this canvas screen is erected by compressed air inside, and it's got actual tubes inside and struts yep. that then hold it out when it's launched, and then off it goes and chugs through the water with the propellers propelling it forward at the back. Yep. Now, that canvas is actually waterproof. Quite often, before the D-Day landings, when you hear about everyone's waterproofing their vehicles, we also have deep wading tanks yes which what they do is they put little vents above the exhaust and they ah. gum up everything with something called exactly yeah and they have something called bostic which is a kind of mixture of a paste that they use that and balloon canvas right. to seal all sorts of areas around the vehicle. Right, so right, when right. it goes for deep wading, so if you have a wave that floods over your engine deck, it won't cut out the engine. The fact it's higher up and it can still get air into the engine, etc. So there's a number of things that they're talking about when they're saying they're actually waterproof. The thing is, if you come to the museum, there's a window in the canvas here and you can get a glimpse of all the mechanisms and stuff. Right, but how do you see? That's my second, my second question is, how do you look at this? Right, so when you're going ashore, the commander is at the back and he's actually got a tiller arrangement. He talks to the driver down the front as well. The driver's normally about the one crew member actually who has to uh, sit yeah. in the vehicle. And they give the crew escape apparatus, a bit like Davis escape apparatus, which the submariners use. So it's got just enough oxygen in a little chest rig. And think about this, you on a 30-ton tank. If that water floods over, you go down like a stone. So they make sure that they keep it very small, so you're not going to get trapped in your hatch if it does go down and they go down on training exercises you know yeah. there's footage of them coming off the end of a landing craft bit too steep an angle water over the front so Came you've got over. that as i said three foot freeboards not much on a choppy day on the you know on the english well, there's a hole in the canvas here i mean it, well this this one is the last <laughs> remaining one with its canvas there and if i'm honest you know we can't really depress the canvas anymore because it's got so it's a brittle, rubberized it's canvas there, right. exactly it's got brittle over time and the screen was put in because so many people walk oh yeah look so this thing. is uh, this is rubber yeah. on the other side yeah. so that's, so that's what makes see, it waterproof. Um, and it's hopefully sealed, but you can imagine the guys are actually, there's descriptions of them coming into shore, leaning back against the canvas as the waves are battering them, trying to make sure this thing doesn't suddenly collapse and they're all suddenly float bobbing around on the ocean. Well, of course, nerves are still to it's go. It's just another one of those things, think? another one of those Second World War thi things where I think, thank God I was born in 1968. Um, uh, now, you have an object for us, David. Yeah, one thing I just thought is worth, worth us talking about. So when we go through all these issues that, um, you know, were we any good in the war, things we pick up on, this is one of those areas. 79th Armoured Division was a brilliant British creation, and it's getting somebody put in charge of it who's got imagination, innovation, and knows what he's up to. Um, and they get this idea, and there's, there's, take it back a little bit, there's a guy called Percy Hobart, 
He joins the Royal Engineers in 1904. He has a great First World War, gets a military medal. He ends up um, DSO, captured by the Turks. In the 20s and 30s, great advocate of tanks. Now off he goes and he does a lot of training of British armour. And, and this he becomes famous for. He's a brilliant trainer in Maine. He become trained to one of the Royal Tank Regiments or Tank Corps at the time. And then just before the war, he's sent out to North Africa and he's there to train the 7th Mobile Division, or it's basically the 1st Armoured Division we're putting together there. Falls out with a guy called Jumbo Wilson, who's the guy in charge of him. And Later Supreme Allied Commander of the Mediterranean. Absolutely, and he's sent back, and basically he's of an age now where he's put on the retired list. Thank you very much, we've done. Don't need you anymore. So what does he do? He joins Chipping Camden Home Guard, <laughs> all right? And this is the actual pike he was issued with which, if you look at it, what I'm holding is a bit of scaffolding pole and... Good old-fashioned, know where you stand, 17-inch sword bayonet. Exactly, First World War bayonet, welded to the top there, and that is what Percy Hobart, as a corporal in the Chipping Camden Home Guard, was going to defend Britain with. My God. And as we know, they don't like it up them. No, they say, don't panic. So Crikey. what happens is Churchill... There's a bit of a campaign, one or two people, Little Heart, writes to the papers and said, look, you've got these really clever guys, great trainer and men, get him back. So Churchill has a word with Brooke. Alan Brooke uh, get, asks Hobart to the war office. Again, there's this wonderful correspondence where Hobart's saying, do you want me to come in my corporal's outfit? How do you want me to dress to the war office, etc.? He walks in as a corporal in the Chipping Camden Home Guard. He walks out as a major general. And he's first put in charge of 11th Armoured Division to train it. And then put in charge of the 79th Armoured Division, which is going to be another Armoured Division ready for the invasion of Europe. <coughs> they realise after Dieppe, we're going to actually concentrate our specialist armour, and he's put in charge of that. And it's one of those moments where an old guy who's hit retirement age finds his moment. He's a brilliant trainer of men, and he's famous as well because he's got the government chief scientific advisor standing next to him who explains how these things work. Next minute, he turns to his driver, who's a corporal, and says, what do you think of this? Yeah. He will take good ideas from anything. And his moment comes. That pike, he ends up in 1945 commanding the largest armoured force in Europe. Am I right in thinking he was Montgomery's brother-in-law? Yeah, his sister marries Morton ah, Small world, there we uh, go. And again, that, that peculiar world, they are related. And again, he's a fascinating character because he's, yeah. he's, he's, you, you get some people, are obviously, he's prickly, he's irascible, he argues with people, he doesn't get on with, doesn't suffer falls gladly, but boy, does he want to make his unit successful. Last time I came here, I remember you telling me some of that story, but also a story about when he had a load of tanks lined up and he, and he said... But what's the story? So he's, he's another one. He doesn't take crap. Yeah. So bullshit is not, not his metier at all. So he looks at this wonderful parade of tanks lined up, all polished, all looking lovely, says, turns around to the CO at the end of the parade and says, right, now start them all up. Because, in other words, do they damn well work? Yeah. That's the important thing, yeah. not what it looks like. Bullshit, of course, in that context. P -p 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 the civilian context, it means sli something slightly different. The military context of bullshit is, is blanco and Polish, polished yeah. boots and shiny buttons and everyone stood in straight lines and all that. And, and, the, and the stuff that, that, that people maybe think characterises the military. And there, there, are, there, are, there, is, there is a history of soldiers, who, officers particularly, like, I'm not interested in that bullshit. I, and it, that's what it means in that context. Yeah, I think, I think as well that one other really key thing that comes across about Hobart is this ability he has to train people well. 
and there's another issue as well, which is, of course, for the build-up to D-Day, is we've got to get this done in a hurry. Yeah. Um, you know, there is a deadline, and uh, one of the things that you pick up on, he shoots around the country in this staff car, they call it the Blue Bottle, and, and it shoots around the place at breakneck speed. He is a man on a mission, and he's got to get this done in time. And one thing, even though we talk about this amazing planning that goes on, um, some of these vehicles are only just arriving, they're just in and time. They're, and they're essentially experimental types. Uh, David, we're standing right next to the Crocodile, which I've got to say is one of my favourites. So, so for those who don't know, this is a Churchill tank that is also a flamethrower, and it can, it can spew a jet about 120 yards of a mixture of oil and rubber and it's actually napalm, napalm isn't it? Napalm, yeah. It's, it's, it's horrible. It, yeah, it's, it's another one of those weapons where um, the idea's been around quite some time. Flame weapons, you know, goes back to Chinese, you know, it's absolutely amazing stuff that's Game been going on. Um, goes all the way back to Westeros. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> but what you've got here, it's part again, they look at the Churchill tank because it's heavily armoured. Yes. So you've actually got more armour on the front of a Churchill than you have on a Tiger. Yes. Um, so from that point of view, even though it's relatively slow, it's got good levels of protection and it's got some space inside. So what they do is they bung a trailer on the back, um, which this tank will actually pull behind it. Within the trailer, are pressurized tanks that will force through this jellied petrol like napalm to the bow machine gun position that's at the front and that's where there's a squirting jet that comes out in the machine gun position it God, will it's unbelievable, isn't and it? light there's a little lighter at the end of it so this then becomes a flame jet and famously this is a weapon um, quite often there's descriptions of it being you know they just turn up they'd flame a tree they'd flame somewhere nearby and that was enough to persuade whoever's opposite, put your hands up, I'm not going to fight. Well, from my research into this, I would say that German troops feared this more than Allied troops feared a tiger. Yeah, and it's, it's one of those areas where, because it was also, and this is this other weird thing, certain weapons were looked at as unsporting. And there's stories of crocodile crews being quietly executed because this was not what was the done thing flame weapons no one wants to burn yeah because the ss were really good about being playing fairer yeah of course right well we're going to take a break now um uh, we'll be back in a minute um this thing is terrifying Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. We're discussing all things D-Day, tanky, tanky things D-Day. Um, before we continue, a couple of your tweets. Uh, here's a marvellous one from the wonderfully named You Can Call Me Al, who says, this really is an excellent podcast. I, I, I like listeners with taste, don't you, James? Oh, I do. This really is an excellent podcast. I'm going to read that again. This really is an excellent podcast, to the point of making me visit the Imperial War Museum on my day off today. Oh, <laughs> spreading well, that the, is good. Spreading the joy. Uh, and here's a highly relevant bit of history from Bagus, who says, oh, is that Bagus or Bagus? Bagpus. I don't know. <laughs> B-A-G-U-S. He says, brilliant podcast as ever. Shout out to the Didcot, Southampton and Newbury Railway Line, which saw huge numbers of traffic. Part of the line was doubled up in 1943 to supply the armies before, during and after D-Day. Absolutely. Is, is this a Second World War nerd train spotter crossover moment? 
I think, I think it is, it, but I'm I happy think with it, that. I think it could be. I'm quite delighted with that. And here's one from David Melanti, who contacted us to say about D-Day. I spoke to an ex-signals officer who said the whole thing began a few days earlier than is known. Parts of Old Mulberry were sent from secret moorings near Warsash Hamble in Hampshire. In fact, stuff was coming down from, from Glasgow for, for the Mulberry, wasn't it? And yeah. set, set off all early. All the big companies, all the big companies yeah. were doing it. Balfour, BT, McAlpine. Yeah. And they kept it quiet. Yep. Extraordinary. Quiet. Fascinating. Now, Anyway, we are now in the conversation area but we're also <laughs> we're also in the conservation center uh david where are you leading us to right i just want you to have a look at this this is basically where we are is our whopping great big storage shed yep that um very grateful to the heritage lottery fund various other funding bodies which meant that we could put a lot of the collection that had been scattered around some were gate guards some were outside um some were in areas where the public couldn't get access to um but you'll see as we go through this door... And this is open to the public, isn't this it? This is, you can come in here as well. We open this every oh day. Oh, my God! Look <laughs> ah. at that! Oh, yes. wow! OK, so <laughs> what we're looking at here is a massive hangar absolutely jammed full of tanks from every bumper conceivable to, bumper era. Bumper to bumper. This reminds me of that photograph of that field near Isigny-sur-Mer, yep. which is where they put all the kind of um, knocked-out tanks from Normandy. And it looks just like this, except these all looking substantially better, Nick. How absolutely amazing. Okay, so I'm looking at a Churchill down there. A Sherman, in desert colours. Desert colours. Yeah. First There's World War tank down here. So I've got to interrupt Holy you here moly. because this, this is for me, it's always the pleasure of the moment where when you actually <laughs> let people walk into this space and they look and we're on a balcony overlooking it all. Okay, it I'm getting on my that, camera and taking that, a picture That here. wow moment where everybody gasps. You're telling and me. We're, we're all back to being schoolboys again, trying to do, you know, is that what I think it is? Is that what I, you know, and everything else that way. And uh, it does have that wow factor of armour. Um, about a third of the vehicles in here are runners. Some of the ones are vehicles we're going to work on in the future and basically it's almost like the reserve store there's a lot of interesting items in here but stuff we haven't at the moment got display room on the yeah. galleries or we're going to rotate through over time so will any of this stuff be out at tank fest david yeah so at end of june tank fest we've got a number of vehicles here will be going out running we also bring guest vehicles in so for example mm. this year we're 2019 we've got a panther coming um, from the French that will be running. Um, we've got the Dutch bringing over stuff. So we also have modern armour as well as the earlier in World War II stuff. And, of course, down below us, this is our replica Mark IV First World War tank, um, which we was originally copied from one of our tanks here. It was used in the War Horse movie. And for us now, that's brilliant because we can use it. We don't want to use the First World War ones because they're so delicate now. What's and what, what about that Churchill? Sorry. <laughs> you see what I mean about <laughs> schoolboy <laughs> stuff? What, what, what about that Churchill? So that's a Churchill um, that we think saw service actually over in Italy. Um, and it was a gate guard. So some of the vehicles we've got in here, sometimes from a distance, they look pretty good. You get a bit closer and you realise they've been sat outside. So this one here is, for example, if you just look at the cupola, yep. where the glass should be, they've actually just got wiring in there right. um, to stop kids putting their fingers in. So these, some of these vehicles here, there's a Sherman further along, the one with B. Yes. That's with a 105mm gun. Um, the larger the howitzer that was yeah. put on the Sherman. Um, there's some experimental stuff. There's a Sherman recovery here, 1930s British armoured cars. As you work your way around, there's a... Swedish tank here, doesn't it look like a German pre-war? This one yeah. here, the M40, that's good hands. Volmer, who designs the A7V in World War I, goes to Sweden, learns his art, helping them develop a tank, and then goes back to Germany to help in the Panzer programme. Right. So, you know, you see some of these connections here, and um, 
one of the issues we have, of course, is trying to look after them, but also where we can, if we can get them running, because one of the things we do here at Bovington is try and run tanks, and that helps people understand the issues. Because when you see one of these things coming towards you, back to that, you know, static in the museum looks lovely. When it's moving, suddenly you start understanding the fear factor, the noise yeah. it makes, the ground shakes, the screeching, the rumbling, the tracks working. You know, you understand these are things that are going to wear out quickly. Um, they are not like your car. Yeah. Well, they're not. I mean, the residence parking permit for that Comet there would be more than the 80 quid I pay at the moment. I love the Comet though. It's a beautiful looking tank, isn't it? It's a beautiful looking tank. And back to British successful tank design, that, you know, in the back there, you've got the Meteor engine, um, derated, um, basically the Merlin from the Spitfire. You've got fishtail exhaust on the rear. You've got this fantastic gun. Looks like a 17 pounder. Actually, it's a, they called it the Vickers 77 millimeter high velocity gun. It has got that, with discarding Sabo ammunition on that comment, had more penetration than the gun on a Panther. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm, uh, I'm pretty blown away by that. That's, um, that's amazing. If you're not gobsmacked when you come in, there's something wrong with you. Right, okay. I'd like to know, we, we have some questions now. We have some yes. questions. I'd like to know more about the D-Day subterfuge op, says a perfect fifth, whereby the Allies clandestinely and heavily bought the Swedish stock market to suggest a landing in Norway. Well, Churchill was absolutely obsessed with Norway. Uh, and apparently, whenever there was a kind of sort of future operations meeting, he'd always go, well, I'd like to suggest Norway. And everyone would sort of go, yeah, OK, fine, whatever. Um, but what they did do as part of um, Operation Fortitude, which is the, um, um, you know, the deception plan before D-Day, they did put a whole load of troops up in Scotland to kind of keep the Germans guessing. Uh, and it's very interesting when you look at the discussions that are going on at the OKW, the German general staff and with Hitler and everything, you know, one minute they're going, well, I, I really think, you know, it's likely that the Allies are going to land in Norway. Yeah, I really think they're going to be landing in the Pas de Calais. Do you know what? I think they might actually land in the south of France. Mm. Yeah, I think they might land in Norway again. And, you know, it just goes round and round and round and round. So, although they never do actually launch a landing in Norway, um, it is certainly a hot topic for Churchill. He's very keen on, he's obsessed with Norway. Well, and the, and the, but the Americans wouldn't, because the Americans in the end, they wanted to fight directly. They wanted to take the Germans on directly exactly. in France. And it doesn't make a lot of sense, No, no to be it honest. doesn't make any sense at all, really. And, and, and there were kind of, the, the, the Churchill was fighting, you, you can look at it, that Churchill's fighting a sort of classic 18th century campaign where what you do is you use your navy, descend, as they used to call it, on various foreign outposts and use your, use your logistic power in the form of the navy and, get, and force the enemy to fight at arm's length, like the Peninsula campaign, like what Wellington's doing in, in Portugal, where the French are drawn, drawn to fight him and worn out at arm's length because that's what we can afford to do. And Churchill, you can argue, is thinking like that. I mean, North Africa, we've got to fight in North Africa because the oil, but Italy, the Balkans, Greece. I mean, there's, Actually, the, the, the oil, landings he's the oil, doing. In, I, don't, I, hate, I hate to contradict you there, Raoul, but the oil <laughs> is only supporting operations in the Mediterranean and the Middle East. So most of oil for Yes, Britain but I'm saying if the, but if the Germans have got their hands on, on oil, it would have changed things greatly because, I mean, we've been talking about vehicles where there's not enough fuel and not yeah, enough oil. Yeah, they've still got to transport it, though. So yeah, 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 yeah. But, 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 but yeah. You, get, you get my point. The key one there with fortitude, though, of course, is why you're doing this is so the Germans genuinely cannot put their forces together in one place, though they're spread out around the place. So the fact that in Norway they're keeping 
German soldiers till yeah. 1945 with tanks, with resources, yeah. with supplies. Yeah. That's brilliant because it means they cannot be used either on the Eastern Front or against us, obviously, in the Normandy campaign. So that keep business about... Exactly. Keep them guessing. Keep and them spread. A, and, of course, because of Allied air power, any attempt to move them will be really, really tricky. Yes. The only thing I'd say about, about Normandy is I, I think, you know, if you were German, if you were really thinking about it logically, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty obvious place that they might well land. I mean, if you think about it, Norway's unlikely because of all the reasons we just talked about. Um, Padacale is sort of unlikely because it's so well defended there and it's just too obvious. Anywhere else is good. You know, by the time you get into Brittany, southern France, all the rest of it, it's all getting a little bit too far and away and a bit too remote. You know, so the only other place really is Normandy. Rommel actually favours kind of either side of the Seine, doesn't he? He thinks that's yeah. where it's most likely. Um, the Normandy coastline, you know, is a good a bet as any. And, and, you know, there's this big debate about where to put the ten panzer divisions or nine panzer divisions and one panzer grenadier division, where to put them. You know, should you put them close to the coast or should you keep them spread apart over the whole of the kind of sort of Atlantic Wall or, or northwest Europe and, and southern France so that you sort of, you know, you're not kind of putting all your eggs in one basket. But actually, I think it would have been perfectly possible to put most of the panzer divisions roughly kind of in that kind of stretch between Normandy and kind of, you know, Calais. Mm. That would be most sensible to me, and they just don't. They don't. Well, no, but we come back to a, the last podcast where, um, if you need a tiger tank, explain Hitler. And I yep. think we can explain a lot of this. That the, the, the command, the basically the command structure and culture in, in, in the German is is, is all over. Very the place. divisive. That's Sclerotic, the thing to remember divisive. as well. Yeah, what what seems logic to us in wartime Germany with the Nazi Party in power, the logic doesn't always add up in mm. ways that we would think that way. And that's another thing. So whether it's industry, whether it's a Wehrmacht, whether it's OKW, whether it's decision making processes. When Hitler's involved or rival figures, suddenly things are going wrong. Yeah. So I've got a question from Antman1805, who says, Why isn't the name Stan Hollis more well-known? Only VC earned on D-Day. A forgotten person, surely. Can you tell his story? Well, I think what's... I mean, the, you can tell his story better than me, but what I think is really interesting about D-Day is there is only one VC, which indicates, of course, that it's been a massive success because um, Victoria Crosses tend to be dished out when things have really gone horribly wrong. Um, Rourke's Drift is, um, how do you distract from what, what, what's happened up the road? You give loads of VCs out. Arnhem, I mean, no, five VCs at Arnhem. Well, because it's a complete shit show. So, of course, <laughs> you give out medals and you say, but we fought really gallantly and the men did their, the men did their damnedest. So part of D-Day is, it is striking that there is, I think, I've always been sort of struck by that there is only one. Because, of course, the Allied idea is about um, teamwork and that it's a shared effort and not, not necessarily having aces. But Stan, tell us about Stan Hollis, because I, I know it roughly, but you, you know, you have a book out about <laughs> Normandy, I believe, James. Oh, yes, and I I'm do. Sure yes, he surely comes up that. in your book. He does come up in my book. <laughs> and actually, but I have, I've, I've walked the ground where he won his VC, every little bit of it, because it's actually a two-pronged action. But he's a fascinating character. He's, he's a northerner. And, and what I love about him is, is 
you know, he's he's got bad teeth. He doesn't look particularly particularly brawny. He hasn't got that kind of sort of all American, all German kind of square jawed look about him. But he was just plain talking. He, he started off life as I think as a merchant seaman. Didn't like it. Went back, became a lorry driver, then joined up. You know, he saw action throughout the Second World War. By the time it comes to um, to D-Day, he's a company sergeant major and he's tough as old boots. He's been there, seen it, got the T-shirt and everyone completely respects him because he's just tough, says it as it is. You know, so when they're, when they're getting, getting issued um, condoms to put over their, their rifles to make sure they stay waterproof, he goes, you know, I thought we were supposed to kill the Germans, not fuck them. <laughs> And of course, it just lightens the mood. So he's yeah. a he's a great one for just getting the mood of his yeah. of his men. And what he realises on D Day, they're coming off at Versailles, which is kind of on the uh, kind of eastern end of, of Gold Beach, Sixth Green Howards, and um, you know they're coming off the beach. And they're getting attacked by this kind of strong point down, sort of uh, over, overlooking the kind of main road as an anti-tank ditch. And he just charges up and, and takes him out of his Sten gun. You know, people have, you know, the Germans are firing at him and he, he jumps on the top of one bunker, chucks in a grenade, clear, jumps around the back, shoots them all up with his Sten gun, then charges down a trench, attacks another one, takes lots of prisoners. And then later on the day, there's an action up at Crepon, which is a kind of sort of village up on the hill where he saves two of his guys who've been stranded um, you know he, he's an absolute hero I mean he's a complete lad and of course the real relevance here is you're absolutely right in the sense of that idea that there is an action that's seen which means you get the VC because yep. there's so many brave things going on that aren't yep. necessarily recorded or seen the other side of it is afterwards what Stan Hollis do he comes and becomes a pub landlord well then he's uh, truly a legend you can't argue with that there's an amazing bit by when, uh, <laughs> when they have the longest day and it's the premiere of the longest day in yeah. whenever it was, 1964 or 65. And um, they say to him, you know, um, Mr. Hollis, you know, we've, we've got a German veteran here. We, you know, we'd like to take a photo of you shaking his hand. He goes, fuck off, I'm not doing that. <laughs> That's a complete sidebar. I heard a really good story about medals at the weekend from a friend of mine who used to um, be in the army. And uh, he, his family are from Zimbabwe, so they, were, they, they, were, uh, they knew this guy who was in the Rhodesian squadron in the Air Force during the Battle of Britain. And apparently there was a, they were flying hurricanes, and one of the squadron was a guy known as Elephant, because he was huge. He was too big, great big fat bloke, basically. And when they, when they uh, converted to Spitfires, he was too big in, to get in the Spitfire <laughs> with a parachute, right? So he flew all of his Battle of Britain sorties without a parachute, because he couldn't fit in the aeroplane with a That's parachute. That's amazing. Right? So then they got sent three DS, the squadron got sent three DSOs, for the, for the commanding officer to dish out at his discretion. So uh, the commanding officer got one, obviously. Um, uh, one of the other lads who'd done something heroic got one, and then they gave one to Elephant as a matter of course, because he'd been flying around without a parachute. <laughs> so the me medal medals often would just come in the post, and uh, obviously Stan Hollis is different. Right, now, I would be interested in your observations. Wendy's boy writes, I would be interested in your observations on the following subject. What if... The Americans had aborted the attack on Omaha Beach on the mid-morning of D-Day. How would they have done it? What would the change of plan have looked like? What would have been the implications? But because, well. of course, the reputation of the Battle of Omaha Beach is that it was a very close-run thing, that the Americans uh, were, were suffering extremely high casualties. And I've read, I've read uh, certainly Ambrose, I've certainly read accounts where Bradley's in his... Bradley's in his cruise or whatever, and they have a they have a chat where they say, 
are we going to we're going to knock this on the head and transfer everyone to Utah Beach? So, you're, I mean, James, you're pulling the let me let me shut up and let me speak <laughs> face. <laughs> well, it's very interesting. So, um, Bradley's chief aide was a chap called uh, Major Chet Hansen, and Chet Hansen kept a very very detailed diary of what's going on. Uh, and it's absolutely clear that from the USS Augusta, which is where Bradley is watching, he can't see diddly squat. The radio traffic is, is full of static, snatched words. It's very hard to kind of have the faintest idea what the slice is going on. At about 12.30, he says, uh, Bradley says to Hanson um, and, and to his chief of staff, right, I want you to get on the beach and tell me what the hell is going on. I just can't make head and tail of this. So there's no sense of panic at all from Bradley. At he just doesn't know what's he going on. He just can't really see. It all seems to be going fine. There's no sense of panic at all, right. I should hasten to add. He just wants to know what's going on. So he's not going to send off his chief of staff and his, and his, and his chief aide if he thinks they're nine times out of ten going to get shot up and killed right. the moment they set foot on the beach. So he sends them off and they get onto the beach at about one o'clock and there's a bit of stuff flying around but it's sort of okay. There's lots of debris about but, but Hanson and his chief of staff come back and they go, no, nah, it, you know, it all seems to be under control. And um, Hanson says in his diary, um, Bradley is the kind of image of calm. He doesn't seem in the slightest bit worried. I'm paraphrasing but it's worse yeah. to that effect. Then later, um, Bradley does a, um, an autobiography where he doesn't really suggest that he's that panic-stricken. And then he does a subsequent second autobiography where he does suggest that, you know, actually it was all a bit scary and he was considering kind of pulling off and all that sort of stuff and, and it crossed his mind. And I just think that is conforming to the post-war myth and the narrative that has built up about it. I mean, you, I mean, you pointed me in that direction of one book which really opened my eyes to Omaha Beach yeah. that pointed out that one of the problems was not people being killed, it was just a lack of mobility and that was due to a lack of leadership because assault platoons had been mixed up, you know, the, the usual leaders they're trained with are being changed and all the rest of it uh, and you know it needed people to grip the situation what is also really clear is when you look at after action reports yes it is true that two landing craft were completely wiped out because a mortar landed in them and it is true that in the initial waves opposite Colville and Verville it was all a bit saving Private Ryanie but it very quickly wasn't and there were lots of people even landing in the first wave you got off the beach absolutely fine and if you look at after action reports of various company um, platoon commanders from the 116th which was kind of the first uh, in the first among the first waves in the 29th infantry on the kind of western side of the yeah. beach um, a lot of them say you know cross beach with one casualty cross beach with two casualty one dead you know that kind of stuff i mean it's or, or no casualties at all it's it's really not as bad as you think well then i have there's a question i have to ask you what why what's what happened between 6th of June 1944 and Bradley's second autobiography, second memoir. What, why, why did this thing build up around Omaha Beach? Well, because the, kind of the first two companies of the 116th did get absolutely decimated, particularly, yeah. I, think, I can't remember if it was Company D or Company A, I think it was Company A, they got, you know, it's like 90% casualties yeah. in the first couple of minutes. So, obviously, that is your Saving Private Ryan moment. But, but, but what you have to understand is, is the number of Germans actually holding the crust is about 350. Yeah. I mean, the strongest, there's 13 strong points directly overlooking that five-mile beach. Yeah. You know, there's 50 or and 15 been, with a few further there, back. If you've been there and stand at the top of there, it's very striking. And, it, and you, you look down at the beach and you think, bloody hell, you know, how did anyone get off here given the advantage of those positions? Well, except that if you're... The thing about those bluffs is they curve downwards so yeah. that if you're 
you're a German in there, you're in clear view the whole damn time. And across the whole of that beach, they've only got 85 machine guns, which might sound like quite a lot. And it is a lot to kill infantry. You know, that is a lot of killing power for infantry coming off a, 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 a landing craft. But as we discussed with the MG42, yeah. it gets very erratic very, very quickly, very loses its accuracy. As long as you keep moving, you've got quite a good chance of, of survival. Again, you know, in addition to that, there are about, um, I think there's 35 guns there uh, along that entire coastline, of which 20 are field guns and 15 are anti-tank guns, or maybe it's the other way around. But the, there's only two 88mm calibre, and the calibre yeah. is the kind of the size of the diameter of the shell. Yeah. Whereas opposing them are 183 guns of over 90mm diameter. I'm sorry, you're just not going to win against that. Yeah, you know, yeah. two under, you know, there isn't one that, you know, 183 guns of over 90 millimeter caliber pounding at you all the time, lots of smoke. You know, every time you're in your bunker, you get hit. Now, you might not, it might not actually penetrate your bunker. But that's you might not be okay, the point. You're... But bits are falling off, there's dust, there's smoke, you can't see diddly squat. Yeah. There's thousands of square jawed Americans with great teeth coming towards you. You know, I mean, you're just not going to win. And what happens is a domino effect. So once one strong point gets knocked, out it's only a matter of time before the others and really i mean omaha beach is all over by nine o'clock in the morning really i mean you know there's still lots of fighting there's still lots of danger people are getting killed but but the outcome i would say is not in dispute by then well we hope that answers your question <laughs> so i mean seriously how, i mean how you know it's interesting how many people are killed on on omaha beach allied troops and i say allied because a lot of the uh, the coxswains uh, on the landing craft yes, are british british boats, um, is 842 um, which is a heck of a lot. Let's not beat about the bush. It's a huge number. But it's, I suspect most people would have thought that the number of dead on Omaha Beach was considerably higher than that, yeah. at least three times higher than that. Just backing that one up, if you actually read the after-action reports on each beach, the level of confusion you might be reading on a British beach that you're talking about Omaha. Yeah. So that level of confusion and what goes on and the problems at each beach seems to face it's retrospectively we have this sifting action that we therefore have to come to sort of generalizations conclusions and everything yeah. else and somehow it's all very successful with us etc actually at the time some of those reports you you know the the something's blowing up next to you this vehicle's sinking over here actually it's you could have pick them out and put them across all of those different beaches it's just with the omaha as well when you physically go there you cannot help but notice the geography overlooking in that manner yeah. that makes you feel actually it's very striking it's yeah. a very striking i mean the, the the other interesting thing is they get off, they, they get off omaha beach and and utah beach at kind of the same rate and Utah's pretty much an unopposed landing, isn't it? So, so it's to do, yeah, because they land in the wrong place as well. It, it's, it's a lot to do. It's, I mean, this is, again, we, we said this earlier, people get hung up on D-Day. It's as, much, as is important what happens on D plus one, plus two. Plus well, it really is. And what happens when the Canadians, you know, a couple of battalions of Canadian soldiers and a handful of Sherbrooke Fusiliers, Sherman tanks, come up against the full weight of the first panzer regiment you yeah. know an armored brigade of the 12th ss and the 12th ss get absolutely nowhere yeah and that, that tells you one of two things either that um the ss weren't very, the 12th ss weren't very good but actually we know that they're bristling with weaponry and motivation and discipline and all the rest yeah. of it so they're not you know they're going to be pretty good um or that the canadians are absolutely amazing well they definitely punch massively above their weight or which is the reality that going on the attack in normandy is unbelievably difficult yeah. which is 
really the situation. Which is the story of the, ne- the, the next the of the next eight weeks. weeks. Yeah. yeah, right. Um, and John asks: um, Was anything missed in the D-Day planning? What irrelevant things were included in the planning too? David, what do you think? Do you think anyone? There, there is an argument that you could say some of that specialised armour come the day didn't was it really necessary did it really do its job on the day if the americans didn't have that much specialized armor on utah and yet they still landed successfully managed to get through the german defenses was it a waste of time doing all those other things um it's a real tricky one to answer that in the sense of because it's what if what if yes and the only thing i would argue about with that specialized armor it added to the morale and that idea that when you're looking around you and you can see someone seems to have thought this issue through even if it is not actually necessary on the actual day that building a confidence level and giving your morale that that we are thinking of your issues chaps we are going to come forward with an idea so you don't have this as a problem and remember what happened before We've got something. We're going ahead. We're thinking through those So your cost-benefit analysis, as it were, has to include morale, has to... Has to uh, and that's a really tricky one to then put yeah. into the equation to say, well, did we really need that? Should we have thought of something else? Did they really do anything? We talked earlier about the amazing crocodiles. You know, three of them ended up, you know, one of the ships was delayed, only three land late in the day. So they weren't actually... Think of all that time, energy, effort. They, that particular moment on D-Day itself, they don't actually use their flame guns at all. So are we going to say, that was a waste no of course it wasn't yeah. because those trained men other people have seen it and they are as we say so within 24 hours they are flaming something and that means that you know that was important that they were there ready yeah. to do it yeah i mean they crossed the they, they crossed the D- t's and dotted the i's didn't they for dj i mean for instance the famous pegasus bridge gliders the sappers in those gliders had rubber dinghies with them in case the bridges were blown and they were going to have to get across the river anyway you know they'd 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 gone that far into the detail contingency planning hadn't they yeah i don't really i think it's really hard to fault the d-day plan and you know the 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 only shortcoming really is they just don't have enough landing ships which are these hundred meter long uh um, hundred foot long rather um uh vessels that you know have a draft of kind of four foot seven they can take you know, 2,100 tons or yeah. 18 tanks and 350 men. You know, they're, they're really, really impressive bits of kit. And, um, you know, they, they just don't have enough of them. They've got 237 until, instead of 277 or whatever it was they were expected yeah. to have. And they could have just done with another 100 of them. Mm. You know, that's a, that's a shortcoming. And perhaps they should have planned for those a little bit more. Um, 100 foot, 100 metres, yeah. 100, 100 metres, yeah, yeah, yeah. 100, 100 foot's a bit titchy and, for 18 tanks. Yeah, they don't have enough of those. But <laughs> otherwise, I don't really think you can fault it. I mean, I think they sort of... Things obviously don't go 100% according to plan, but... Yeah, I was going to say, the one thing that, that sometimes afterwards, well, after having a look at the geography of the landscape, all those different things, one thing that they did actually say is the that idea of the Bocage countryside, should we have thought a little bit more about what the geography was going to impact on the nature of the fighting beforehand? So the in idea, the later campaign. In the later campaign after D-Day itself. So that's, that's one area where perhaps we should have thought a little bit more but about But the Bocage this. cut both ways because it, it created a situation where the Germans could be held close and attrited, I think. Would we agree with that, James? Definitely, 100%. Fantastic. I, did it. I got it right. Right. Um, well, I think we believe we've, I believe we may have got a foothold on the beach. This D-Day podcast, tanky edition, has gone well. We'll be in Berlin by Tuesday next week, I think. Yeah, we will. And we should just flag up the fact that we're going to be recording a live podcast at yes. the Chalk Valley History Festival on Saturday the 29th of June, aren't we? Yes, at noon, at I noon, believe. Yeah. yeah, so do come along. Okay. Uh, get in touch. Use our hashtag, we have ways. Um, 
We'll be, oh, we're going to be talking more Normandy, aren't we? I think. We can, we can, yes, we are. And talking of which, new book out next week. <laughs> this week. Shameless. <laughs> oh, no, Bye I'm for now. Sorry. Cheerio. And a big thanks to David, of course, here at the Tank Museum.